Welcome home. I'm Dr. Tama, a minister, licensed psychologist, and sacred artist. And this is Homecoming, a podcast to facilitate your journey home to yourself. While I will provide weekly inspiration and mental health tips, this podcast is not the same as personalized therapy. I'm so excited you're on the journey. If you want to request specific topics or to submit a poem for me to read on the podcast, email me at homecomingpodcasts at gmail.com. Also, to build our community, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Let's begin. Welcome home, co-journers. I'm glad you're here for another episode, and I am so excited for our special guest on today, Dr. Marlon Rollins, who is a licensed therapist, is a motivational and inspirational speaker, is an author, and one of the things I so appreciate about the work that you do is some special focus with men. And I think oftentimes, Men and women, mental health professionals prefer uh, focusing on women because often we are the ones seeking the care, Um, but it really is needed by all community members, including men and boys. So I'm so grateful that you are cultivating that space, creating that space for men to be restored and encouraged. So welcome to Homecoming. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, honored to be here, and thank you again for creating this space, and um, and thank you for seeing me, and um, mm-hmm. I, I'm such a blessing to spend some time with you, and again, in a healing space, so and to reach this community and talk more about how we're connected to people in our lives in such a meaningful way, and how to improve that connection, not only to them, but to ourselves. So Yes, yes, absolutely. There's a lot of overlap in our work. So I'm grateful for the time and conversation. And we want to focus today on suicide prevention, uh, as well as healing and resilience. And all of those are areas of expertise. And you come to this work, not only from your studies, but from your lived experience. And so I love, I would love if you would share with us your journey and about the life of your sister. Thank you. Thank you so much again. And so, yes, I, I sadly lost my sister uh, to suicide back in 2013, 10 years ago. Her name was Amber Rose. And so the work that I do also in this space is to honor her memory and her calling to as a healer. And so I keep that in mind um, because I consider my sister like a soulmate, right? There's special people that are connected. It was just her and I. She's two years older than I was. And um, so the journey really began for me. I was uh, really called into ministry when I was a late teenager, and I really got connected to finding my own community and spiritual restoration in the church, and really got called into counseling psychology, and because I wanted to find out what is my purpose, what is it that that God, what is it that you would have me to do with my education, and kind of surrender to to that as a purpose, and so I just sought out to pursue in ministry. I got ordained when I was 21 and pursued and got my PhD in psychology by the time I was 31 years old and master's in counseling psychology. So I had always worked in that healing space. And of course, the church was a healing space as well to minister to people, to speak to people, to impact the lives of people. So anyways, that became my foundation essentially. And so 
I had taken a job working in, uh, after I finished my doctorate, my pastor actually had become very ill and I was going to work in a university setting, but I ended up taking a job to help support him and the local church at the emergency room nearby. Uh, and I'm originally from Indiana and um, it was there. My sister was actually working as a nurse in that same hospital. And I worked in the emergency room and I would consistently see people coming to the emergency room who were struggling with mental health crisis. And my job was to assess them. I would go to the bedside sometimes for folks who came in maybe after an overdose, trying to get them connected to care, triaging them, et cetera. That was my role. And it was also a blessing. Again, my sister worked in the same hospital. She worked in the transitional care unit where she would basically tend to people who had gone through a significant trauma or they were ready to transition back into the community or they were at the end of life. And she was kind of the usher of kind of their final moments. And her and I spent a lot of time after I'd finished my shift, I would go up to to see her on her unit. She worked a night shift. And she also had a home health care business called uh, Serenity Home Health Care that she would tend to her patients after she left the hospital job. And so it was really a big deal for her to be in this role. And we always talked about as kids as we were going to make it and we were going to make a difference. You know, we had a we had a we had a struggle, you know, coming up, you know, like like many do. So we we believed, you know, we had made it, you know, we're going to combine our powers and I'm going to be the therapist and she's going to be the nurse and we're going to partner up to help people. And so it just felt like being that brother and sister, you know, team again and. Uh, I later took a job uh, and she shared a little bit with me at that time that she was struggling, you know, in a, in a marriage and also struggling with her own mental health. And I was like, you know, you should really see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, specifically a psychiatrist. And uh, and I was taught like in the field, you don't diagnose your your family members. Right. Don't. <laughs> so I was like, I see something's off and I'm just concerned. And I think you should you know, here's what you can do to get some help. And. So I later took another job, a bigger role as a director of operations. I've also worked as an executive in healthcare programs here in California. But at that time, I took over as a director of operations for a crisis department for a psychiatric hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana. And a few years into that job, uh, my sister, I got a call one day and she was just in her own mental health crisis. And I could hear clearly that her, you know, rapid speech uh, some delusions. And I knew that she was in trouble just based on my own clinical experience and saying, okay, my sister's in trouble. So I went and got her and I, you know, got her admitted to a hospital, which is the one I was actually overseeing at the time. And she, through that process, she discovered that she was struggling with an opiate addiction. She tested positive for opiates. And as a nurse, that's a big no-no in the industry. So unfortunately that caused her to be in a position where her nursing license was suspended. And she had to go on probation and go through treatment to get her license back. So obviously it was very devastating for her because it was what how she lived and how she identified. She even had the nursing license plate. She also had a younger daughter who was 13 years old at the time. And uh, that was the, also the most important person in her life. And she was also trying to get out of this marriage that she was in. So again, at this point, it seemed as life was kind of cascading in on her and kind of crumbling and as a brother, I was trying to do everything I could to support her, but also she's my older sister. So it was a little bit of that. You can't tell me what to do. Right? Nice. My sister was strong. She was, you know, forced to be reckoned with. But again, but, you know, my journey was, you know, by the end of that, that year, she ended up ending her life on December 31st, 2013. Um, it was an absolute tragedy 
for her, my, her daughter, myself, our family. And I went from, you know, now tending to my own wounds and also the guilt of, you know, I'm supposed to be a therapist, you know, how come I couldn't stop this? And, and also now I'm utilizing my sister uh, to try to plan her funeral, right? As a minister within, you know, a month. So it was this heavy burden. And I just, the grief as was just palatable and I couldn't get away because I worked in the field. And I started to look at her case more like clinically as a way for me to cope, even though my heart was broken. Yeah. Um, and I just begin to see all these fissures in the healthcare system and access and the stigma that went around having a mental health diagnosis or having an addiction disorder that she made this decision to end her life in the state of depression. So that really provoked me further to find opportunities where I could work within bigger healthcare systems because I also identified a lot of barriers for her just getting the help that she needed. Like it was hard. For her to get the help after she was seen to have a problem. Now we've got somebody who was a great nurse because she had a struggle and it wasn't easy for her to get the help. Mm. And just the psychology of kind of the self-deprecating talk, mm. not feeling strong enough. I like read through some of her clinical notes later, mm. feeling like she was weak, that kind of stuff. But she was the, other than that, she was the brightest person in the room, beautiful smile, beautiful person. Everybody loved to be around her. She inspired so many other people. So it was devastating to yeah. see her going like this. Thank you so much for sharing her light with us and giving the fullness, a fuller story. I think often in the aftermath of suicide, that becomes like the single note of the person. Yeah. And so you know, wonderful to hear about her strength and dreams and you all together uh, and how you can be working toward your dreams uh, and still struggling. Right. Yes. So and naming those different aspects of life, whether uh, relational, professional, health wise. Mm-hmm. And a big piece of it is breaking the silence and breaking the shame and the stigma. And then in the aftermath, you know, describing this feeling of uh, guilt or wishing you could have figured out something to do, right? So talk some then about the healing for uh, the friends and family members. And I know people heal and cope differently. Mm -hmm. And and you're absolutely right. Everybody's journey is a little bit different. And with suicide death in particular, and, you know, we've had some in the community as of recent years, as we've seen suicide rates go up. So it has really hit me heavier. It's been a subject that I could not avoid. Mm -hmm. And because I was in a space of uh, working in crisis departments, uh, it was a word that even just hearing it, I was shaken in my soul to tears at times. And what I learned to do is that I had to talk about it. I had to tell the story. I, you know, went to counseling myself I realized that just holding on that hurt in my heart and trying to fix it as if I did something wrong or whatever wasn't wasn't the full answer. I had to speak about it. I had to speak my truth. I had to speak about the pain. And then as I spoke, I found that other people also would say, I've never talked about this death. Like when somebody dies by cancer, we say this happens and we have this conversation. But when somebody dies by suicide, it becomes this great shame and secret. 
and the guilt and you're angry at the person that you love for ending their life at the same time. So that became more transformative for me to find ways to have this dialogue. Um, and it gave me a lot of feedback to recognize that I was helping to heal other people by allowing them to find safe space with me to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote a book called Healing the Impoverished Mind. Uh, and I tell in detail about her story. Obviously, her daughter was traumatically impacted. She was the first witness to her death. And at 13 years old, she's 23 years old, and she just had a daughter last year who's beautiful, who's named after her mother. Ah, beautiful. To be, to usher her also on a journey when she has had struggles mm-hmm. and feel, and I know my sister's like, you watch out for my daughter, right? So that was the most important person. So being a, a steward of her journey still is really what has allowed me to heal and uh, add on to, uh, I think, allowing other people, creating better spaces, tr- better treatment centers, better hospitals, right? Recognizing that the people who walk through those doors are someone's, you know, daughter, somebody's mom, somebody's brother, somebody's sister. And to give that to the other caretakers and recognizing this is what we're here to do, to be called together in this space, to help make sure that we're providing the best care for individuals when otherwise they may not have access to it, or this might be the one chance that they have to turn things around. Um, so that's that's been, I think, where I now see being elevated to mm-hmm. is to make a greater impact on people's lives. And where maybe, you know, if I feel as if I miss something with my sister, what I can do is honor her and the work that I continue to do day to day. So glad that you continue to to honor her and congratulations on uh, her grand granddaughter. Uh, yeah. being born. How beautiful. I wonder about, you know, and I'm sure there's pros and cons or there's just nuance to it. I appreciated a recent post you made, um, kind of a message to men that going to the gym is not the same thing as like working through your pain. And while I know for some or for many, they may feel a release there. So it can be that it does something but doesn't do everything. So can you speak some to that? I guess the, the importance of words or community or space to speak. Yes. Thank you for highlighting that, too, because I think that's a misnomer that we get a lot in social media in particular, because physical fitness is important for our brain health. And it should be something that we do, you know, and it naturally recreates endorphins and adrenaline, which makes us feel good. Right. So that's a physical feeling that we're biologically designed to do. What happens is because we many times, especially men, have not found or been allowed to because of social stigma, culture or even taught to how to express painful emotions, Mm -hmm. right? Well, in order to deal with emotional and psychological pain and difficulty, we have to express in that same way, which can be uncomfortable. So I will tell guys that I'm working with them, I'll say, just like when you go to the gym, you know, I'm going to train you to lift and it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to hurt a little bit. I'm going to do the same thing in therapy where I'm going to push you emotionally to get out of your comfort zone and to feel, and it's a release the tears. Mm -hmm. Like, the, the, the sadness, the, the, the words I can't even say properly, but I know that's in my body. So instead of trying to numb yourself with the gym or drugs and alcohol, because people use that too, or other means, uh, emotional and spiritual pain needs emotional and spiritual work, physical, you know, disease 
and physical um, uh, pain all needs physical work, like going to a masseuse and a massage, right? So helping people understand how to see themselves, that they're fully connected, but you need to nurture every part of your mind, your body, your spirit, and the connection you have to community, right? Nurturing it. And that's why I started the man cave is because I wanted to create a safe space for men to come into without feeling like they're going to be judged. Because usually traditionally men, we go isolate, we go to the bar, we go to the club, we do everything, but actually talk about emotions in a healthy way. You know, it becomes, you know, it becomes sex, it becomes something else to divert away from what we're really feeling. And a lot of men are finding themselves broken. And that's why we have, you know, such higher suicide rates among among men, almost four times higher than women, in addition to drugs and alcohol. And again, it's not to say that women don't struggle because we've seen it. Even my sister is an example of that. But men, we we do this in isolation and we lack a lot of peer support. So mm-hmm. uh, I've seen that and wanted to do more. And even for myself, because I needed that to grow. Yes. Right. Yes. To not suffer alone and pushing past those messages mm-hmm. of if you're struggling, don't let people see you. Right. Um, or distract yourself with these things that really don't help or heal in, in the long run. And sometimes not even in the short run. Not even in the short run. Just more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, around, you know, there's one piece which is healing in the aftermath of a loved one dying by suicide, but you also do a great work around prevention mm-hmm. uh, and you've developed this acronym STAY. Can you talk to us some about STAY and uh, the different factors that can help people to stay? Yes. Yeah, because we, thank you. And so this acronym uh, is really about suicide resilience. And it comes from research studies where we've seen people who are, are attempt survivors and what do they need to put in place, right, to not do it again mm-hmm. and to self-assess, right? Of, do you have these elements? Sometimes you call them protective factors. But I, under the lens of suicide resilience, it's the notion if I'm able to establish these things, I can better withstand the hardships of life if these things are in place. So the acronym STAY is two S's. The first S is spiritual faith, your spiritual belief. Having connection to spiritual health and well-being is so critical. You know, you might call it religiosity. Like when you look at older Black women in particular, this is a research study done, women who were above 70 compared to older white men, Black women in that group had stronger religiosity, spiritual belief, which they had one of the lowest rates of suicide, right? So it's not just based on the fact that they're a female and they're black, it's because of how they experience their world and their connection spiritually. So spiritual belief is the first one. Having that at some fundamental basis, the stronger that is, you the better you are gonna be protected, the more resilient you are to deal with hardships. Second one, sobriety, like being sober, right? Staying drug and alcohol free. If I don't know how many times I saw people come in the emergency room or otherwise in treatment centers, the riskiness of the inhibitions that drop because you're using drugs and alcohol, right? Depression, anxiety. When you're sober, your mind is healthy. You know, you have better uh, judgments, right? And you talk about impulsivity when it comes to suicide. Well, I've seen many people make an attempt or in their lives in impulsive moments and drugs and alcohol are involved. Mm-hmm. So staying sober. The T, togetherness. It's so important to have community and feel you're with other people. Like when we talk about other at-risk groups, like the LGBTQ community, 
when they find community and they feel like they're together with community, they're better protected. When any group, indigenous, you name it, when you have a sense of community, I'm connected to these people, people for whatever common, you can find it in church to be connected to something. You could find it in a men's group, wherever it is, I'm together, I'm a part of this. The other A uh, stands for attachment, okay? And that means I'm connected to something, like I'm connected to somebody, my life has meaning. It could be an, a pet. Like I've seen people say, oh, I can't die because my cat or my dog. Mm-hmm. My just having, and I don't mean we've kind of made attachment like a terrible thing. In this context, I'm talking about that versus isolation because we know yes. that when somebody isolates away and they're unattached, that's dangerous. So when you attach, you have some sense of connectivity, accountability in that. And lastly, the A is access to help. And getting access are states that have better concentrations of mental health, therapist access. You'll see lower rates of suicide because I can access the help that I need. But where you're somewhere you're isolated, let's say the state of Alaska, for instance, where there's not much help there, right? We see higher suicide rates there because there's not enough help there. So wherever we see barriers to getting help, uh, it makes it harder for people to, let's say, you know, prevent suicide. But so, you know, that's why the 988 number is so important. So you can call and pick up 988 and dial that number. You can remember it. Getting an appointment with a therapist, you know, getting online now with telehealth. So those kind of things, making sure that you have a full plan of spirit, the spiritual health, your sobriety, togetherness, attachment and access to help. Putting those plates will make you more suicide resilient and you can self-assess. Like, again, if I stand, I stand just next to my sister, she in that moment, my spiritual faith was very strong. We both went through the same stuff as kids, you know, and let alone the stigma of mental health and having disease and other shames. And I I share a lot in my book more about my own struggles, my own shame uh, and being bold enough to talk about it and find it connected. But it's when we hide away and we hide our truth that many because we're ashamed, we believe that our life doesn't have value. And this is where I would say that I really, really am so grateful for the message that you communicate out because the struggle that I see most now is that people don't value themselves, that negative self-talk for our youth, you know, getting bullied, saying you should kill yourself, saying messages like that, or I'm not good enough, or I don't love myself, I don't belong. Whenever you have communities of people mm-hmm. who feel those things, that their life doesn't have value they're more at risk, but it's when you begin to see yourself as valuable to this world that your life has purpose and you begin to create systems around you that you are more resilient. And the message of hope is true that you are loved. Your life does matter. The shame or whatever you think that it is, you're still valued in spite of that. And that to me is the most beautiful message that you can convey to someone to say, that you are valuable. And again, and I can say my sister's absence sharpened that for me because I realized how important she was to all of us, the ripple effect. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the crisis of a mental health disorder or disease or depression, you can't Mm -hmm. see how valuable you are, how precious your life is. And, and, you know, I want to help people see the rest of, of life in, in the midst of the most difficult times that there's a way out. And if you put these things in place for you, strengthen them, you will see a renewed life for you. And there's a greater hope. You can come back even better than you were before. 
So that's my message to the world. <laughs> it's so beautiful and necessary because so many people feel isolated or mm-hmm. like they don't belong or purposeless or valueless. Mm-hmm. And so uh, trying to push through that and convey the message in all of the different ways uh, so people can receive it and, and get it. And I think from the standpoint of the larger community, you know, kind of the implication of what you're saying is the importance of us being compassionate in how we respond to each other. Yes. Because, you know, it is in the midst of people struggling that they may show up in these spaces or that they may reach out. And so uh, as a community for us to really exercise care, community care and community compassion so that people land on good ground. Well, well said. That's exactly it. So be more compassionate, sensitive to people um, and and more compassionate to yourself because we do walk around with a lot of negative talk. uh, We have to remind ourselves again how beautiful we really are, how precious we really are, that our life has meaning and purpose beyond what we can see. Well, please tell people, uh, you said a, a little bit, but a bit about your book, how they can get it and how they can follow you, whether social media or a website. Great. Thank you. Um, my book is called Healing the Impoverished Mind, Building Resilience Through Adversity. It is on Amazon, so you can pick it up there. Uh, my handle at Instagram is Dr. D-R-M-A-R-L-O-N-R-O-L-L-I-N-S. So Dr. Marlon Rollins, pretty much the same across all platforms. And then my website is drmarlinrollins.com. Uh, I do a lot of speaking and consulting um, so you can reach me there if you have questions or message me or something like that. I'm happy to, to support. Um, and I do want to encourage everybody, if you're concerned about somebody, use the 988 number. If you're concerned about yourself, call 988. It's free. It's confidential. I've guided many people who want to help somebody else and they're not sure what to do. Call just to find out what to do and somebody will help you. Oh, wonderful. And for the uh, man cave or men's cave, is that virtual or in person? How do people connect with that? That is virtual. It's intended to be accessible to make it easy. So you don't have to go anywhere. It's a platform called Through Health, T-H-R-U, health.com. And we provide support for people who of all of all kinds who need support. And there's a, if you click on the get started link that says, do you want to join the man cave? And you can select that. Uh, you'll have a call from me and we'll talk through and then we'll get you invited. We're doing right now these sessions for just $25 uh, a session. That's amazing. We wanted to make it easy. $25 a session for four sessions yeah. uh, to join the man cave. Um, and we'll, you know, I'll be there as well as other men in all phases of life talking about the difficulties that they're in and emerging stronger. So again, uh, I want to invite that to, to the men out there who need some support. Just want to talk through some issues. Well, thank you for joining us on today and for all that you do. And for those who are listening, I hope that you will be mindful to look out for each other, but also check in with yourself and access the resources that are available. I invite your soul to tell your heart, mind, body, and spirit, welcome home. Mm -hmm.